0: Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning for people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan, and this is a super fun episode. The title is Palooza," and it is a special highlight episode of some of the amazing research that goes on at the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology every year. And the focus of this episode is specifically abstracts that looked at acetaminophen toxicity, what some would call the backbone of toxicology. The abstracts today are focusing on use patterns of fomepizole and acetaminophen overdose, helping us glean out which population would probably have the most benefit from fomepizole. And then we'll be doing a deeper dive into what is the most appropriate N-acetylcysteine dosing in your patients who are at a higher risk than normal of getting hepatotoxicity after acetaminophen overdose. Now, this is a high-yield review. We're going to talk with the authors of these abstracts, But I do think it's important to recognize that these are abstracts from just this year. There's a mountain of literature regarding these topics that we're not diving into as much, although we will cover some of the background with a few of the authors. This is not meant to be the be-all, end-all definitive management for acetaminophen, but really more of a high-yield highlight of some really interesting abstracts from NACCT 2023, if you weren't able to get through them. The abstracts that we're covering today are characterization of fomepazole use in acetaminophen deaths reported to U.S. poison centers with lead author Dr. Masha Yemitz. We'll be looking at the clinical impact of fomepazole as an adjunct therapy in massive acetaminophen overdose with the lead author Dr. Molly Stott. Then we'll jump into an abstract that compares the clinical outcomes of high-risk acetaminophen overdose patients who received standard dose NAC with low-risk acetaminophen overdose patients that receive standard-dose NAC, trying to see if high-risk patients failed standard-dose NAC more often. And we'll have the lead author, Dr. Alex Ulissi with us for that one. Then we'll round it out with what exactly should you do for those high-risk patients. Looking at the abstract, high-risk acetaminophen overdose outcomes after treatment with standard-dose versus increased-dose N-acetylcysteine, with Dr. Michael Moss, This should be a fun exploration of some of the hot topics in acetaminophen poisoning, as well as a fun review of some of the more interesting abstracts of NACCT. So, without further ado, let's jump in. Everybody, you are listening to the poisonland and this is a special episode to talk about some of the amazing research that was done at the North American Congress of clinical toxicology in 2023 that was in Montreal Canada and the title of this episode is a Papa Palooza because all of these abstracts are regarding toxicology's most nefarious toxin acetaminophen and there's a lot of questions to be answered about acetaminophen, a lot of new therapies coming up, such as fomepizole. a lot of heated debate with much heat, but little light produced. We're going to kick it off with fomepizole, And with me today, I am very lucky to have a few authors of some of my favorite research abstracts uh, that were published this year, who I'm going to allow to introduce themselves. Would you mind telling us a little bit about who you are? Uh, where you're from, and what you're up to.
1: Hi, my name is Masha Yemets, and I am a pharmacist and a second-year clinical toxicology fellow with the Maryland Poison Center.
0: Molly, would you mind introducing yourself as well?
2: My name is Molly Stott. I am a recent graduate of the Florida Poison Center uh, Toxicology Fellowship. I am also a clinical pharmacist. Uh, currently, I live in Chicago, and I'm working as an emergency medicine
0: pharmacist. These are both authors of two wonderful abstracts about fomepizole use. We're going to jump into the first one here from Dr. Yamitz. Characterizing fomepizole use in acetaminophen deaths reported to U.S. poison centers. Dr. Yamitz, would you mind telling the audience what the impetus was for this specific research study?
1: Absolutely. Whenever we realized that there was such a stark increase in the use of Fomepazole in acetaminophen poisonings, we really wanted to get a better sense of when it was being utilized. So that was really the main focus of this study.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of discussion over what the right population is for Fomepazole, and there's very little consensus on that. And of course, all of the current from case reports are severely impacted by publication bias where, you know, you are going to publish a case where you gave from and somebody lived. But here we have in the fatality abstracts, tons and tons of cases of people who got from and died. And let's what are the characteristics of those patients? When did they receive it? I think it's a really interesting thing to look into to help us have a better idea of who our benefit population is. So would you mind then just taking us through your methods and, and what you found in your study?
1: So this was a retrospective review of the fatality abstracts only for those that either had a detectable acetaminophen level um, or it was reviewed and deemed that these patients um, were within the realm of acetaminophen toxicity. We made sure that fomepizole was administered, and we aimed to include patients who had uh, documented mental status, um, liver function tests, as well as INR. And we set up three different categories based on those criteria, so those that didn't have any mental status changes, um, their AST, ALT were below a thousand, and then their INR was 1.5 or less. So patients that didn't have any hepatotoxicity versus the middle ground of patients who did have hepatic injury, uh, but weren't quite to that extent of acute liver failure, and then the latter group who were in fulminant liver failure. So those were really the three categories.
0: Can I ask a quick follow-up question here? Do you know if these were single substance ingestions or could these be poly substance, meaning they may have had multiple other drugs that could have led to death even if acetaminophen didn't?
1: Yeah. So a good majority of them did have polysubstance, okay. um, but even for the No hepatotoxicity group out of the 22 cases, six of the 22 cases were single substance and it led to still a fatality. Um, But I feel like this data, even though it includes polysubstance, that paints a better real world picture of the patients that we see.
0: One final follow-up question. I'm, I'm not trying to grill you on the data. I'm really just curious. Did you have any patients in here that were not just not hepatotoxic, but there's no liver sweat at all, meaning you caught them with some Tylenol in their system and no AST/ALT elevation? I'm, I'm just, I don't know if that's a, it was something you saw.
1: Yeah, that was, and that was a decent majority of the folks that were in the no hepatotoxicity group, oh. essentially. Um, they had a markedly elevated uh, acetaminophen level uh, from the get-go and either no LFT bumps or very, very mild LFT bumps. And, like, and
0: those patients got fomepizole, and some of these were single substance ingestions and still died. That right there seems like it's almost enough patients to to equal out the uh, all of the case reports that have been published where it worked. Okay, that's just very interesting. It seems like that might help balance out some of the publication bias. So very interesting. Okay, would you mind then sharing with us what you found? What were the conclusions of this?
1: So since we just aimed to characterize the use, uh, there was definitely an incline in overall use from about... 2019 to 2020, and then even more so in 2021. And really the majority of the time that fomefazole was administered was to patients who already had acute liver failure. So for those patients, it may have been of more benefit if this was administered early on, whenever they were, uh, whenever they had more of the parent compound on board. Um, but difficult to say. But then, as we go from 2020 to 2021, there was a lot more patients that had been given fomepizole earlier on in their uh, course of toxicity.
0: Dr. Yamitz. The overdoses you were looking at were all comers. It wasn't necessarily massive. Is that correct? But you did seem to see a trend of worse. A lot of the patients who got it and died, which was your population, already had hepatotoxicity. That's correct. So there was sort of a question at the end of your abstract, which is the timing of femepicell administration in relation to liver or renal injury may affect its effectiveness and should be a point of subsequent research. So now maybe we need to look at, okay, when should you administer this? And right now, a lot of people are thinking about it. You, you really reach for the clinical trigger of Fomapazole. Most toxicologists, obviously, there's no consensus. It's going to be when you have a massive high-risk overdose. And I, think, I think that's a, a great segue into our next study, which is from Dr. Stott. And the title of this abstract is The Clinical Impact of Fomapazole as an adjunct therapy and massive acetaminophen overdose. right? So would you mind Dr. Sack, giving us just a little bit of information on why uh, you and your group chose to do this study? What was the impetus? What were you trying to find out?
2: Sure. So when I was thinking of my study design and just why I created this in the first place is I really wanted to start using Fomepazole. I had just conducted my grand rounds on Fomepazole for a acetaminophen overdose. And I just felt really unsure when to use it. And um, at my center, there are some people who are very pro Fomepazole. And then at the time, there were some people who are very questionable of Fomepazole. So I set out to figure out when should we actually be using this? And it seemed appropriate to start with the worst of the worst. So the massive overdose population. So that's kind of where we uh, started this project. I didn't really know what I was going to find. So I just kind of let the data guide me, but we did find some pretty interesting outcomes.
0: Yeah. And what a, what a a useful venture. There's already a lot of debate over who the right population is in the first place to order it. But then let's, let's talk about the other side of this. When does it become futile to even, you know, you think about it in high risk or hepatically injured, but when is it too late? Is there an impact of timing? Obviously, there should be, but we have no idea really where that line gets drawn. So I think this is an interesting assessment. Well, that that's uh, wonderful. Would you mind taking us through your results uh, or your methods and your results of, of what you found?
2: Sure. So this was a retrospective chart review of patients from the Florida Poison Information Center Network. So from the Jacksonville, Tampa, and Miami poison centers, I was able to pull all that data together. And I kind of left my clinical question broad. I just wanted to know the clinical impact of it. Um, And then to narrow that a little bit, I wanted to figure out when should we actually be starting it? Because with N-acetylcysteine, or I'm sorry, with Femepazole, we know that it's gonna inhibit the conversion of the parent compound. To the keep, but then we also know it's going to prevent the translocation into the mitochondria, which is evidence for why you potentially would use it a little bit later on in an overdose as well. So which actually works better? We don't know, but um, essentially what we did is it's a retrospective chart review. We included patients with massive overdose. We define massive overdose as an acetaminophen level greater than 300 or a multiplication product greater than 10,000. Of course, there are many other definitions. Uh, Some people choose to use a much higher level. I think that is also something heavily debated, what actually is a massive overdose. Um, But after reading through the literature, um, this seemed to be some of the most common definitions. So from there...
0: yeah, I guess I'll point out, this was probably done before... The quote-unquote, you know, the well it was done before the U.S. acetaminophen guidelines came out, which yes. they do propose a definition of high-risk acetaminophen overdose, which is pretty, and that's within line with what your you you used at least for your three hundred line. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for listeners, you can go back and check out our episode, the U.S. Canada acetaminophen consensus statement uh, with the lead author there, Doctor Richard Dart. And basically people who have an acetaminophen level double that of the rumac Matthew nomogram line, they they do have a bit higher risk of hepatotoxicity uh, with standard treatments compared to others. So,
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, And then we grouped our data into two groups. We have the same day group and then the delayed group. So the same day group are patients who receive femepazole within 24 hours of NAC initiation. And then the delayed group are patients who receive FOMEpazole within or greater than 24 hours after NAC initiation. And we looked at a lot of different outcomes. Um, However, the two that were significant were peak AST as well as total days of NAC therapy. It was Interesting that total days of NAC therapy actually ended up being one of our statistically significant outcomes, because I think that's one of the good ways to guide how well the fomepazole is working, because we know for sure that NAC works, that that is the antidote, that it works, it saves patients. So, um, at my poison center, we, keep redosing the 16-hour bag uh, out of the three-bag protocol until we have a reduction in the AST and ALT by 50%. Uh, The INR is less than, I believe, 1.5, and then a couple other parameters. Uh, But if we were able to decrease the amount of days of NAC, theoretically, that means they're getting better quicker, right? And then also the peak AST um, was significantly less in the same day group suggesting that we when you start from epsilon earlier on they do better less hepatotoxicity.
0: Fascinating results, right? I mean it makes sense to me. If you started earlier, you're gonna be less likely to develop hepatotoxicity, not only because you're reducing NAPKI production, but maybe if there is NAPKI there, you're preventing you know the mitochondrial damage that comes from it. So it it is inherent sense. I don't know if we've come up with a, a, we didn't draw a line in the sand in terms of the last day that you get benefit from it though. Right? No, no. Masha, did you, do you know like the latest time you saw neck or from episode given in your study?
1: I mean, basically some of these patients were being transferred to liver transplant centers and they were still uh, basically having the kitchen sink thrown at them, and phomepazole was part of that kitchen sink regimen. Uh, So I'd say fairly late in the game.
0: Very interesting to see. Well, I think these are two wonderful studies. You know, my takeaway from both of them, one, there's a lot of people who got phomepazole and still died. And it seems like if you're giving, that population was derived largely of people who got it already in the patotoxicity. So that's kind of my takeaway from uh, Dr. Yemitz's study and Dr. Stott. It's showing earlier starting, you're going to have a, at least from our surrogate markers of hepatic injury, you will have less hepatic injury, or you'll be able to sta- stop. knack. That. Uh, really interesting. In terms of utility here, what do you think? Everybody should get from famapazol on admission with their for, before their APAP level comes back. What do you What do you guys think? <laughs>
2: I think that this is such a difficult question, um, uh, because while I am a definite from believer, I do not agree with empiric use. Um, we have the antidote NAC is the antidote. We know that it works. We have great data. Um, so I think right now the biggest gap and uh, the biggest gap in our recommendations as toxicologists is the actual characteristics of the patient for when we initiate the femepazole. So, while my study showed that if you start it sooner, it's probably better, we still haven't found the correct patient. The what characteristics show who will do better, um, which I think is a really important question that needs to be answered.
1: Yeah, and I completely agree with Molly in that sense. I feel like it does have a certain place in therapy, uh, but actually weeding out that place and for which patient is more difficult to answer, uh, but hopefully more research can elude a bit more. And I am a fan of it as well. I've recommended its use before, um, along with And acetylcysteine, because that is the gold standard. We know that it works. Um, And those patients that got it did, did well, they did great. But would they have done great either with or without it? That's uh, another difficult question to to answer.
0: So many questions to answer and very hard to do with tox literature, especially in a poisoning paradigm that has multiple confounding treatments that can impact the outcome being studied did they get charcoal did they not were they treated within 8 hours were they treated late were they a high risk ingestion was their nactose increased did they get famepizol we're looking at a 10 arm study right here to see if we can even figure this out and recruitment just isn't going to happen for that but uh I really appreciate the insights here and you know I personally I am actually I, I wouldn't say I'm anti-femipazole. I'm pro-controlled evidence proving a benefit. But even I have recommended fomepazole once because I was like, well, what's the harm? And this is a really bad one. <laughs> so I I feel like everyone's just racking their brain to come out with some form of consensus on how we do this. And I think the two studies that we talked about today provided a one one more grain of sand of clarity in the, the desert we have to get through, but out. All efforts are moving forward in a good way. So thank you to my guests today, uh, Dr. Yamitz and Dr. Stott. Really appreciate your research contributions for all of us. Okay, while flamepazole is a hot topic in acetaminophen, we still have the backbone to cover, NAC and NAC dosing. And who needs more NAC dosing? And does more NAC dosing help those who need more NAC dosing? So let's dive into this muddy water a little bit and welcome on our next guest. We're very lucky to have with us today Alex Ulissi the author of The Abstract, and I'm paraphrasing here, Comparison of Outcomes in High-Risk Acetaminophen Overdose that Received Standard N-Acetylcysteine Versus Low-Risk Acetaminophen Overdoses that Received Standard N-Acetylcysteine. Uh, Dr. Ulissi would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about uh, who you are, where you're working, and what you've been up to?
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, my name, Alex Ulysses, I'm a graduate of Concordia University, Wisconsin in Mequon. Uh, I spent a good amount of time at Frederick, so love that institution and the memories and what I've been taught by you folks over there. Um, I ended up doing my first year residency at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And then I migrated back to the Midwest and uh, did my critical care residency at Hennepin County Medical Center. Where I'm still uh, working, so I work full time in toxicology at Minnesota Poison Control, which is located inside of HCMC, and uh, I still dabble in the emergency department and the ICU side when things allow. I think the majority of what I've been up to for the last few years is raising my kids. They're certainly keeping me busy, and I'd like to sprinkle some research uh, around when I can. But uh, I've been fortunate and, and privileged to work with with great people at our Poison Center on some great projects, including this one. Um, when we were looking at acetylcysteine. Uh,
0: the yeah, the the poisoned patients of Minnesota are in good hands over there. That much, yeah, understand. they sure are. So, talking about this project, would you mind telling us what the impetus was or what the purpose was uh, for you and your group exploring this this topic?
3: In uh, the late 2017, early 2018, we saw a few rather severe Tylenol uh, or acetaminophen ingestions that made us relook at our dosing of acetylcysteine. Mainly, there was some new data at the time about doubling the dose and potentially even tripling the dose. So we, in 2018, did switch to doubling acetylcysteine to, uh, for those patients that were above the 300 microgram per milliliter acetaminophen cutoff line. Um, so this study that we looked at is looking at all those patients prior to to describe our experience for those low-risk and high-risk patients.
0: So you switched to the double-dose protocol uh, in those high-risk patients and now kind of evaluating what that impact was. So would you mind taking us through the methods? Who were you looking at? And um, what did you see?
3: We tried to make our study as clean as could be, but one of the most important things for us, we thought, was to make this a single substance acetaminophen ingestion. Um, they did have to receive intravenous acetylcysteine. We didn't look at uh, oral, and we looked at about two and a half years before our switch.
0: So what did you end up seeing in terms of your high-risk patients who are being treated with regular-dose NAC versus your low-risk patients who were being treated with regular low-dose NAC. Yeah.
3: We ended up looking at about 311 patients, 25.4% high risk, uh, and then conversely, 75% in that 150 to 300 line. Uh, we noticed uh, actually a good amount of difference. Um, our primary outcome was similar to the Prescott protocol, so incidence of hepatotoxicity, which would be defined as a maximum AST above 1,000. So when we looked at that, hepatotoxicity was more common in those high-risk patients, so approximately 11.4%, when they were treated with the standard Prescott protocol, compared to 4.3% in those that were at lower risk. In addition to that, the, the typical reportings for retrospective studies, such as the major effects and the moderate effects, both were uh, statistically significantly higher in the high-risk patient. We also looked at that maximum AST, which was higher uh, when we compared the median, uh, the mean, the ranges, interquartile ranges, that was uh, statistically higher in those patients. Um, in addition to that, and it shouldn't come as a surprise, the high-risk patients also had a larger amount of acetylcysteine being continued. So we uh, saw 44% of patients in the high-risk group having to continue their acetylcysteine protocol, meaning they didn't meet criteria to stop at that standard 21 hours versus only 11.6% of these low risk cases. And it should go, uh, you know, to highlight that no, no, no one died in this, uh, retrospective study. None of the patients that we saw uh, had, uh, outcomes of death.
0: Yeah. But importantly, you know, time sitting in a hospital is going to be expanded in a single substance ingestion if you're sitting on NAC for a while. So. That's very fascinating. So essentially the higher risk patients, they had a higher incidence of the, the clinical biomarkers that we care about for evaluating those who will progress to severe liver failure. But largely everyone did okay, but they did sit on NAC a little bit longer. It's kind of interesting. Well, very fascinating study, and I appreciate you doing the due diligence and the laborious work to assess what is happening with patients who appear to be at a higher risk. And they're getting our standard dose and from the results i'm seeing here it seems like the standard dose may not be enough sometimes now what we need to do is a whole other debate but at least we have this observation yeah we kind of saw this as a
3: part one uh, of the study because what this doesn't show is what the right dose is or if the dose made any impact i don't think it's a surprise that those that ingested more would have worse outcomes But the next part would be to look at patients after that, identify high-risk patients and see what the dose did and how that compares.
0: And that is a perfect segue into our next abstract with our next guest. So I appreciate you bringing that concept up because we're going to be talking a little bit about what impact does a higher dose have. So we'll move on to that. All right. And thank you so much, Dr. Lissy, for joining us and talking about your research abstract at the NACCT 2023 conference in Montreal. Thanks for having me. So in high-risk patients, those double the acetaminophenomogram line, in this study, which is a published research abstract and not a fully peer-reviewed manuscript, it did show that standard dose NAC had higher rates of hepatic injury. There's various reasons, but in a well-controlled study, the main reason would be that you're producing more napki than your NAC can detoxify. So you might need more NAC. And there's been a lot of other studies looking at this, but we're focusing on the 2023 NACCT abstracts. And there was one study within this abstract group that addressed the question. So I'm thrilled to bring out our next speaker. And he'll bring up some of those studies as well. We're very lucky to have with us today Dr. Michael Moss. Dr. Moss, would you mind introducing yourself to listeners, giving us a little bit of background on who you are, where you work, and what you've been up to?
4: I'm Mike Moss. I'm medical director here at the Utah Poison Control Center. I've been here about the last five years. Um, I'm in emergency medicine. I also do addiction medicine, and of course, uh, toxicology consults and poison center work here in Utah. I suppose I got into this a bit because you may have heard the name Rob Hendrickson in these acetaminophen debates, and he was my fellowship director in Oregon, so I've been thinking about this a lot, as every toxicologist thinks of themselves as the preeminent expert on acetaminophen, so all trying to figure out what is the right thing to do with these sort of fringe case acetaminophen exposures.
0: Yeah, and Dr. Hendrickson was the uh, proposer, I will say, of the acetaminophen Double line. Well, actually, I don't know. He, he, he has a great review article on trying to identify uh, high risk patients. And I know he's got a great um, article in there where you can look at the Rumac Matthew nomogram, and he has a few different risk categories based off where you land there. So we've talked about in this episode already the acetaminophen double line. It's well delineated in that actual article. But today, Dr. Moss is going to be talking to us about high risk acetaminophen overdose outcomes. After treatment with standard dose versus increased dose N-acetylcysteine, abstract number one hundred and thirty, published in the NACT Abstracts from Montreal. So, uh, Dr. Moss, would you mind telling us what the impetus was of this study, or or why your team decided to pursue it?
4: Yeah, so like you mentioned there, the maybe the three hundred line, the double dose line, the uh, uh, you know high risk line, whatever you want to call it. Rob Hendrickson published that review of, you know, what is the most appropriate dose of N-acetylcysteine after massive overdose in 2019 uh, in clinical toxicology? After seeing a handful of papers outlining this idea of an increased risk for hepatotoxicity despite prompt treatment in patients that have really big overdoses, however you define that up for some debate, but something in the range of more than like 30, 40, 50 grams of acetaminophen, the Costco bottle of acetaminophen, and someone with an acetaminophen concentration, not just 150 or 200, but 300, 500, 600, and wondering, you know, is giving an increased dose of, of NAC actually working or not? I will say we started doing that uh, shortly after Dr. Hendrickson published that paper. Uh, We had been kind of toying with it and doing it every now and again, but once we had something to point to in the literature, we decided let's be a little bit more rigorous about when we're recommending this and then decided to go back as well. We better look at all the data that we've generated over the last few years and see if we can tell anything about what we've been doing and if it's made a difference or not.
0: I think this is a great look at are some of our treatment strategies having the effect that we want. So would you mind talking us through the methods of your study and and what you found?
4: So we went back starting in 2017. I picked that time because that was about three years before we made the change to our protocol and then did 20. 20, 2021, 2022. So looked at six years of acetaminophen overdoses. We picked just acute overdoses. We rigorously defined those as occurring over a very short time period, over an hour, instead of using some of the looser definitions out there that can go all the way to 24 hours, for instance. Um, These were all records from our poison center here in Utah and our um, records. We do have access to hospital records for many hospitals in the state, but not all of them. So We looked back at all of our Poison Center records of acute acetaminophen ingestions, and then using an army of my staff here at the Poison Center, we reviewed like 2,000 charts to see if they fit because we deal with a lot of acetaminophen at the Poison Center, right? So we all looked back and um, took those acute ones and then saw which patients had an acetaminophen concentration that would plot above that higher risk line, either the 300 line, double dose, high risk, whatever line there. And then included those to see what dose of NAC did they get and what kind of outcomes did they have.
0: And can I just clarify specifically 300 at four hours would be considered high risk, but you were looking, you know, anywhere above that or just at the four hour mark.
4: Right. So this could be, you know, 150 at eight hours and then extrapolated out to 12, right. 16. Um, there's probably some, probably loses a little bit of meaning when you're getting out to 22 hours and saying someone has an acetaminophen of 26, right. uh, what does that actually mean at that point? But uh, for, for the sake of completeness, we did include all patients in the first 24 hours that their acetaminophen concentration would plot above the 300 line instead of just the normal 150 line that we use. in the US.
0: Right. And then you were looking at either standard dose versus increased dose NAC. So I know at where I work, uh, we do an increased dose NAC just across the board, because we don't want to think too hard about it. And what we do is just double our third infusion concentration from 6.25 to 12.5. Can you comment on what your increased dose of NAC was? Is this a flat, just everyone gets 12.5? Are you increasing the dose even more based off of where they land on the line?
4: Yeah. So we would do it individualized to each patient. If you look back to Hendrickson's paper, he doesn't like it when you call it the Hendrickson nomogram, but I'm going to call it the Hendrickson (laughs) nomogram for that. So it's not my nomogram, but you, whether they're above the 350 or 450 or 600, basically in multiples of 150 uh, above then giving an increased dose. This is, you know, kind of based on some of that back of the napkin math of how much NAC to have this much napki and you're going to have this much of a patient, right? All that stuff that went into the original kind of calculations. But our standard dose is the Prescott, the normal FDA approved one hour, four hour, 16 hour infusions at the decreasing amounts. We would do what we, the terminology gets confusing because people will say double or triple or quadruple dose. And we're not referring to the entire dose. We're usually referring to what are we doing with that 16-hour infusion, the third one, which is the lowest traditionally. So we would do, if you're between 300 and 450, we might recommend doubling it or giving them a 12.5 milligram per kilo infusion, which would then apply for that 20 hours. If you're above the 450 but below 600, that would be triple or 18.75 milligrams per kilo per hour. And then quadruple if you're above uh, 600 line than be the quadruple or 25 milligrams per kilo per hour. So quadruple when you're talking about in reference to the dose of the, the third bag. The
0: third and uh, so that was our
4: that was what we set out to do. Not everyone follows the recommendations that we make at the poison center, uh, as we all know about that was our at least structured, yeah, that was our structured thing. And I, you know, we I put it into my guideline and we also had a one page thing sent that we could fax or email out to people that would outline this dosing and rationale. So we made it pretty Rigorous, at least as far as it was part of our formal guidance that we would give people and we would tell them how to do it. And we even had some pharmacists that are colleagues of ours um, here around the community who got some order sets and things built in at these hospitals to make this a little bit easier when they heard that over the phone from us.
0: Perfect. And I like, uh, I think this study did a good job of trying to. So you're trying to see is there a difference in outcome in the same high risk patient if I give them a higher dose NAC versus regular NAC? But there's all sorts of other confounders you need to control for, like time to NAC administration. So I think the study did a great job. You stratified by receipt of NAC within eight hours versus after eight hours. I think that's important and tried to control for other confounders, like noting that a few of the patients got flumapizol. You know what the impact of that is is still hotly debated. Um, well, not so much debated, but who needs it is debated. Uh, and then in terms of your outcomes here, so what did we find? What did you find? Is higher dose NAC better? What, what, yeah. what
4: are we running into? So, you know, we we were recommending this because we thought, hey, this might work. I felt that it would probably be pretty unlikely to harm anybody, um, which is one reason to to do it. And we found that there was no benefit to increase dose NAC, didn't matter how high you were or how early or late you presented. And the one interesting piece, is I had to report what I found, is there was even a trend towards worse outcomes of patients who had an increased dose of NAC with at least to having an AST or ALT above 1,000. That didn't apply when we looked at INR greater than 2 or evidence of liver failure. Um, and I don't know if that's statistical noise or or what, but certainly there was no benefit. It didn't matter what dose of NAC you got. The most important thing was, did you get treated early or not?
0: Right. So when it comes to transplant, when it comes to development of hepatotoxicity, there was at minimum no difference uh in that you know definition of AST, ALT greater than a thousand whether or not you got high dose NAC or regular neck and it is interesting the trend that maybe it was even you know slightly worse than those who got high dose obviously many things can go into that do you have any uh hypotheses do you think that is uh demographic or risk you know confounding you know obviously we're, we're propensity matching here in these cohorts by their tylenol level but a lot of other things can go into that any idea or any music yeah uh,
4: a couple so. thoughts i guess on our outcomes and uh, how to make sense of it one i think you know we're not the only paper that has looked at this uh, we have the paper at a california Poison center from justin lewis uh, a year or two ago that did a similar thing with their data they showed the same thing no difference um, whether it was PO NAC or increased dose NAC or regular NAC, and it was timed presentation. And really, if you have an elevated on presentation showing that you're getting early hepatotoxicity, those are the patients who, surprise, surprise, get real hepatotoxicity, not just liver injury. Um, you know, Angela Chu had the ADAM2 papers also in ClinTox. Their number of patients that were high risk was pretty small. I think it was only like 40-something patients, and we were talking about it a difference of four patients in one group versus 11 in the other group who did or didn't get hepatotoxicity. And if we look at all these studies and if we're now up to, you know, 500 patients getting treated with increased dose NAC or not, I think we're just looking at the sample size between all of these and there's going to be some variation between them. And we have a study that shows benefit, study that shows no benefit, and then our study that has a hint of the possibility of harm, though I don't think that was was true. Um, our patients were pretty young, right? We, average age was quite low. Um, these were a lot of young patients with suicide attempts. Um, some of the cohorts are slightly older. We're not really, we didn't really assess for comorbidities like alcohol use though we did report on acute ingestion of alcohol um, with these and anticholinergics and things like that. So I think the history is always the trouble too, right? Is Is this timing correct? And is this a four hour concentration? Is it a six, is it an eight? Um, do we really know the, the onset and what numbers are we using? And then kinetics are a little different and maybe they didn't have, uh, their acetaminophen was higher or lower at a different time and how did, what does that mean? So what I see is this is just one more set of data in the world that's been published already. And saying if we we're seeing three different studies with three different outcomes, maybe that means we don't quite know what's happening and maybe this treatment isn't <laughs> as great as we thought it could be.
0: Right. I mean, your results can be very impacted by just the population that you're selecting. And that's going to, of course, vary a little bit between each, each group. And really fantastic points to bring up about all the potential ways that uh, the data could distribute differently just based off of um, different analyses. So very interesting. Well, I, I appreciate the, uh, you providing some insights onto the findings from your study. And I think it is another data point that a lot of people, we are all still scratching our heads on, are we doing the right thing? Um, and if not, should we change? And if we did change, should we go back? So having all of that information um, is certainly useful. Uh, and I appreciate you providing your, your insights as the, uh, the study designer to what it all means. Uh, any, any future thoughts on, you know, future directions or the implications of, of this data? I think you summed up well, the, the, the mire that we're in, in terms of what we actually know, but.
4: Yeah, I think like every study that is negative, whether it's uh, stroke or something else, you wonder, is there a tinier cohort that is the true high risk that would actually be the ones who benefit from the treatment? And I think you see that in all of these papers, that as we try to be rigorous, we're including everyone who think might have increased risk, who's above the 300 line, or if you're doing an acetaminophen ratio, divide 300 by 150, you get two. We're including all those patients in our study, the California paper, the Australian paper, uh, the paper from Virginia, where they didn't give increased dose, they just gave regular dose and saw what happened. Um, most of these patients are actually in this 300 to 450 range which is not the biggest risk of hepatotoxicity. Like there's, it's some little signal. If you look at like the big British study where they had a whole lot of patients, like the risk increases in the 300 to 450, but it doesn't really, really increase until you're above 450 or even 600. And if we looked at the number of patients in those really high risk groups, we're probably maybe even dealing with less than hundred patients in the literature there because we've diluted it out with all of these fairly low-risk patients that we're mostly going to do fine no matter what, even though they have a tiny bit of increased risk. So my interest now would be probably trying to get data from multiple centers and combine it to look at the the big risk groups, those who are coming in with an acetaminophen of 600 or 700, and see what happens there. Uh, The other part of that is the dose. Um, You notice my study was called increased dose, and when I outlined all these double, triple, quadruple dosing. And it turns out the majority of our patients only got the double dose because everyone would get confused when they talk to us or like, oh, that sounds like <laughs> a lot. Um, but double seemed easy because it was just the same as the two hour bag or the four hour bag, the second bag. And so it was easy to just kind of do that. And a lot of our patients didn't get a whole lot of extra NAC. Um, They got a little bit more. So maybe it's that they need that really high dose. They, they need 25 milligrams per kilo per hour. Maybe it's the fact that if you're doing these increased doses of NAC, they're not even getting any increased dose for several hours after their exposure. And maybe they need more NAC really, really early in the first hour or two. And this is all kind of just like conjecture and speculation from me, but I'd wonder about um, even higher doses and in the patients that are really at the highest risk. But I think that average patient who has an acetaminophen of 310 at four hours is probably unlikely to get hepatotoxicity. but all of these papers have a patient who has an acetaminophen of 300 or 350 who gets hepatotoxicity despite prompt treatment. So (laughs) it it happens, but the risk is low. And so what's the number needed to treat and who are we actually benefiting or not? Um, Not any clear signal that increased dose NAC is routinely preventing hepatotoxicity or liver failure or transplant in these patients. Unfortunately,
0: that was beautifully said uh, in a great, great, um, highlight of all the things we presume we know about what's going on and, and all the assumptions we make uh, and all the variables that can be tweaked to actually potentially impact the outcome, maintenance versus loading regimens. I have, you know, there, there is also some data showing NAC, uh you know, prolonged NAC can actually delay hepatic recovery. So there's all sorts of um, things that need to be assessed. Uh, and And I think that's a great summary of it. Well, thank you, Dr. Moss. Uh, for coming on, talking about your research and maybe planting some seeds of how we can do a little bit more of a rigorous job evaluating what we're actually doing in the future. Appreciate it. Yeah, if anyone
4: wants to combine your data and do a little multi-center study with me, send me an email because <laughs> we've only got, you know, 20 or 30 patients. And if we could make it 300 patients, then maybe we could kind of put the matter to rest. Once I, all.
0: I bet you we have a few here in Wisconsin. Maybe we'll, we'll have to mm-hmm. think about this.
4: It's a fair amount of manual review labor.
0: Might be worth the lift if we can finally decide who actually needs this. All right, that'll wrap it up for A Papa Palooza. I hope you enjoyed listening to four abstracts relevant to the future of how we're going to treat acetaminophen overdose. A little bit of old with our NAC dosing and a little bit of new with the role of Femepazole. Quick summary of everything we talked about today. Dr. Yemitz from the Maryland group did an analysis of patients who died of acetaminophen poisoning and received from Now, this did include other substances, so they could have potentially died from other causes, but it appeared there were a fair amount of single-substance exposures in here too. The point was, a lot of people have died and also received from so this is not gonna be a panacea. What I found notable was some people died despite not having AST-ALT elevation to begin with and they still received epizol and progressed to death. I'd love to see more information on those patients to figure out if they were polysubstance ingestions. Because generally, if you catch a patient before hepatotoxicity develops, or at least within eight hours of their ingestion, you can usually get enough antidote on board to prevent fulminant hepatic failure. But it brings up the fact that we need to much better define the population for which epizol could have a benefit. Dr. Stott from the Florida group started doing that with her paper looking at the difference in outcomes whether you got from epizol within 24 hours of presentation or after. Unsurprisingly, the earlier you administered from epizol, the better the outcomes were. But we don't really know how early and whether or not it's worth doing if you already have AST-ALT elevation or if you need to hit them before hepatotoxicity develops. We need to continue analyzing our populations to drill down into who the most benefit will be seen in. On the spectrum of giving everyone from epizol and no one... We are still swinging quite a bit from each side. Then we took an analysis of our tried and true antidote and acetylcysteine. The Minnesota group looked at patients who were deemed high risk for developing hepatotoxicity after overdose. It's largely defined as someone who has an acetaminophen concentration twice that of what would indicate the need for treatment. So if you get treated with a level of 150 at four hours and your concentration is 300, you're usually deemed high risk. They found in those high-risk patients, if they received standard dose NAC, they had worse outcomes than low-risk patients that receive standard dose NAC, at least when looking at the outcome of hepatotoxicity and days of NAC therapy. Another way to look at this study is those who take more acetaminophen and receive the same treatment tend to do worse. But we don't necessarily know what to do with those who take more acetaminophen. In our final abstract, Dr. Moss summarized his study that actually found if he used higher doses of NAC in that high risk group, they didn't do much better. In fact, there was maybe a signal for doing worse. Now, this specific topic of your NAC dose has been the subject of numerous trials, so I wouldn't take just one conference abstract as the be all end all. You have the ADAM2 trial with Dr. Angela Chu, you have the Virginia group that did clinical outcomes of massive acetaminophen overdose treated with standard dose N-acetylcysteine. First author was John Downs on that. And they found that standard dose NAC within eight hours prevented hepatotoxicity in almost all patients, but they didn't have a comparator group. And there were a few other studies as well. So as Dr. Moss brought up, probably we need more study on this topic, but something to keep your eyes out for future research. Okay, I think that's gonna wrap it up for today. I hope you appreciated hearing some of the great research that comes out of the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology every year. And if you haven't considered going, I would. This is my favorite conference every year. It's great people, great ideas, and amazing research. If you like what you've been listening to today, go ahead and give us a review wherever you're listening to podcasts. Or even if you don't like listening, you could still review us. It helps us reach other people who are interested in learning about toxicology. You can follow the show on Twitter at LabPoison, myself at EMPoisonPharmD, our Instagram, Talks underscore Talk, and our Facebook page, The Poison Lab. And as always, you can always reach out to the show at Talkstalk1 at gmail.com. We love getting listener emails about anything you think we did right or wrong on the show. Finally, check out www.thepoisonlab.com to see all free medical games resources episodes and a link for some Talks trinkets if you feel like repping the show out in your own home state. I think that'll wrap it up for today. Thanks for listening, and I hope we can catch you next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out?
1: The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. Cheerio mates! See you next time.